Well, good morning. Good morning. Those of you in the venue and the cafe, good morning to you. And uh, welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church. And I didn't get the memo about green. So does the bottle help today? <laughs> Happy St. Patrick's Day. And uh, glad that you're here this morning. If you're visiting Big Valley, you're relatively new. I'd love to have the chance to meet with you. I'm going to remain up here in the front after the service. I'd love to shake your hand and maybe pray with you if you would have that need. Uh, right after the service, there will be counselors uh, in the altar room. Uh, I've talked to someone today who just got news that their cancer is coming back. Maybe you'd like to have someone pray with you. Uh, whatever burden that you're carrying today, whatever need that's in your family, there'll be counselors there in the side room that would love to pray with you and, and encourage you. And that, So that opportunity is available to all. Uh, even if you're brand new here at Big Valley Grace, that opportunity is for you. Well, we have uh, Pastor Rick is at uh, Covenant Grove this morning. And, past, and the Lord has given Rick a real passion for the churches of our community, and he asked if I would preach this morning uh, so that he can go and minister to another church congregation in the community. It's a church that Big Valley has been uh, um, uh, able to help through your gifts and your offerings, and so he wanted to be there. Uh, they're putting, they're um, launching a, a campaign to build a building, and Rick wanted to be a part of that, so he'll be back here soon. But uh, anyway, we're glad to have this opportunity. A couple things before we start. We're going to be in John here in just a little bit, but Rick asked I might uh, just talk about a couple things before we get going. Deuteronomy chapter 6 encourages us as moms and dads that we take advantage of the opportunities around us, and when we get up in the mornings, as we go throughout our day, as we head to bed, that we, we constantly look for opportunities where we can teach our, our children our families about the nature and the character of our God. And this week, there were two significant events that are tremendous teaching moments for our children. And so uh, my children are gone, but I have grandchildren. Maybe you have, are in that same stage of life. We constantly have this responsibility to teach those in our families about the nature and character of God. And, and two significant things came up. One, Lord uh, showed again that there's no such thing as a secret, right? Might wanna write that down. It's a phrase that was shared with me years and years ago. I've never forgot. There's no such thing as a secret. The word says, be sure to know your sins will find you out. And this last week, someone who thought that they had a secret that no one would ever find out uh, was fully exposed and they're deeply embarrassed. And over 45 families of great wealth, uh, their lives are being turned upside down today. Something that probably had been going on for years and years and years. And these 40-some individuals who thought they were fairly insulated um, the cover's been pulled off. They're full of shame today. Uh, they don't know what is in the future. They're, many of them are out on bail. It means that they've been put into a court situation they thought they never would be in. And uh, their future is very, very uncertain. It's a good lesson for us, right? How many of you have been caught in a lie? Boy, a lot of you didn't even raise your hands. Good for you. <laughs> Maybe you're the ones that don't want to be caught in the lie. <laughs> But we all, I would say we probably all have. And by God's grace, he brought truth to light in our lives to teach us lessons. Because it is good to live in such a way that there's, there's no skeletons in a closet. That we live transparent lives. And when we do that, the Lord gives us freedom. A freedom from fear, freedom from shame. And the word says in Proverbs 3, it says that we should wrap truth and kindness around our neck. We should, uh, there'll be garlands, there'll be a blessings not only to our lives, but to others' lives. We live truthful, transparent lives. And that we dare to stand alone with Christ even when it hurts. That means that when I was involved with sales, it was always better to do what's right 
and not ever have to take anything back. And even if you sometimes, uh, there's times where you, you have to, you, this is what I said and this is what we're gonna do even though it costs me. It's better to live those kind of lives. And so here's a good lesson that our children and these kids that are up here need to learn. And I would tell my kids, look and learn. Watch around us. There's events going on all the time that reaffirm God's word and his truthfulness and his work in our life. Number two, number two. <clears throat> None of us know what tomorrow's gonna bring. And there are 49 worshipers that went into their place of worship and they didn't come out. And actually there's 50. There's one just passed away last night. And their lives were forever, forever changed. We have no guarantee about what our tomorrows will bring, do we? And it's good to live in such a way that you know the Lord can come back anytime. He could come back in the clouds or there's lots of different ways he could take us home, isn't there? And it's always good to live in such a way to know that at any moment, I am eager to look forward to to meeting Jesus. The sad thing about what took place in New Zealand is that evil is all around us, isn't it? And it really makes a difference who, who you give your heart to. It makes a difference giving your heart to Jesus. It makes a difference following him. It would make a difference in this community if all of us as men and women were wholly devoted to him, but there was some individuals who gave their heart to another. And evil just burst forth into their life. And when you give the enemy ground in your life, when you yield to the devil, and you give him a foothold in anger and bitterness, man, it can become consuming. And we don't understand, don't have all the answers as to why things and bad things happen. Uh, those Muslims are not our enemies. We do not agree. They, they're, they're worshiping a false god. Allah is not the same as Jehovah, not at all. But we're commanded to love. We're commanded to show Christ off in a wonderful way. There should be no room in our heart for evil or animosity or prejudice or bitterness, any of that. The Lord would want to rescue us from all of those things. All of those things are bondages that keep us from being the men and women God wants us to be. And so I think it's appropriate. Those are two big lessons for our kids to learn, for us to learn. It's the temporariness of life, the suddenness of life. As you go back into your place of businesses, it's appropriate to ask. And I, and I did this. You know, these things have happened all in many years. But I would often would say when I was working at Pools, man, if, if you were one of those that were caught in that, that nightclub, would you be prepared to stand before the Lord and hear him say, what I should you let to my heaven? That's a great question. Do you know for sure that if you had been in that nightclub and something had taken place in your life and now suddenly you're standing before him, do you know for sure that you would have a place in heaven? The Lord would say, welcome home. And many would say, no, I'm not sure. And the Lord wants us to be sure. He says, these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. These things are absolutely true. And this is why we study the word of God is being reaffirmed and re-encouraged to keep trusting and following Christ. We're gonna pray here in this moment. We wanna pray for the families that have been touched by this tremendous evil and tremendous tragedy. But folks, this is a, that's not us. We don't embrace any of that. And, and as people hurt, we need to pray for them. And there'll be people around us that are hurting. We need to pray for them. We need to show them the love of Christ regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of the color of their skin, their economic situation. Our hearts should break for, their, for them as they grieve and as they weep and whatever it would be, whether it's in the loss of life 
or the shame of uh, a sin being found out. We don't rejoice in any of those things. We uh, grieve with them. And we pray that God would do a, a work greater than we can ever imagine. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I don't begin to understand how all this world works. And I, I do know, Lord, that when you come back, these are some of the things that are going to be done away with, where the old have passed away and new things come. And look forward to that day, Father, when you will reign supreme and these things will be no more. Until then, Lord, you've given us a mission. And Father, we might show off the love of Christ, that we'd be known for our love, not for our prejudice, not for our hate, not for our bitterness, not for our anger. And I pray for these families that have been so touched on both sides, Lord, those who are caught in shame and those who are wrapped up in grief today. And there are others who are so angry, so bitter. That, Father, you would reign. And you said, Lord, that, you're, that if you are for us, who can stand against us? You said that nothing could ever separate us from your love. You said that you're able to work out all things for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And so, Lord, we pray that you would reign in these situations. The enemy would be defeated and your kingdom work would be advanced in our lives and those lives of these families who have been touched today and this week. That, Father, you would reign. And so, Lord, we give you the praise. We welcome you here today. Help us to understand your word as we read it and study here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, whether you're in the venue cafe, online, special greeting. I know I have some friends in Pennsylvania who are watching today. I miss you guys. But let's take our Bibles now. Let's open up to John chapter 14. Actually, go to John chapter 13. I hope you have your Bible. And you might look up down the road. Maybe some folks don't have a Bible, forgot to bring theirs today. Maybe you could share. Maybe if there's an extra one, you could share them with you. And uh, if you do not have a Bible of your own, we do give them out. And right after the service, if you go to the altar and just say, hey, can I get one of the Bibles? We have a, a very, very nice Bible that we give out. And we encourage you to take it and write in it. And these chapters, if you were to look at my Bible, are the most written in, most highlighted book. And I think when we get into this series in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you're going to find that these chapters are really, really precious. Well, we, for those of you who are fairly new to Big Valley, we study the Bible a verse at a time, a chapter at a time, and we have been going through the book of John. We'll be wrapping up soon, and uh, we'll have a new series that we'll be starting, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, this summer or this fall, but we're here in John chapter, uh, actually 14, we're going to look, uh, reading here a little bit later today, but, but before I read it, I think it's important that we get a good background, so we're going to do a little Bible study, or a little quick overview of terms of the backstory that's in this this book, just so we understand the continuity of what we're about to read. So this, follow along with me. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all in one location. It's called the upper room. When you look at all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books are testimonies, testaments, are, are, are written that we might know the life of Jesus. Each one writes from a different perspective. The order of writing is generally thought that Mark was the first to write, Matthew was the second, Luke comes in third, and John writes much later. He is older. He is aware of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. Out of those individuals, Matthew and John and Mark were eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Luke comes in as a journalist, and he interviews people who are alive at the time, only a few years after the ascension, and he does personal interviews, and he puts, and he puts their story together in the book of Luke. 
But when Matthew, Mark, and Luke write, when they talk about the upper room, they talk about the details. They talk about how the room was found, how it had been prepared, and how uh, they come across this man carrying a jar, just like Jesus said, and they come into this room. None of them take five chapters to describe the room. And so when John writes, he looks at what Matthew, Mark, and Luke write. He says, guys, there's not that he disagrees with them and not that he contradicts anything, but he says, folks, you need to know what happened in the room. It was a whole lot more than a meal and breaking of bread. There were some tremendous things that went on. So as we look through this, we're going to see a number of things. That Here it's in the upper room. These five chapters, Jesus has this incredible conversation. He has been eagerly looking forward to this time with his disciples. He's spending some time with them. And then confusion is going to occur. And I want to show you these things. but Because it really, when you understand what was taking place, what leads up to chapter 14, verse 7, these little things you probably have missed. I missed it until I began studying it. And I couldn't believe what I saw. So Jesus is having this sweet time with his disciples. What we don't read in John, but we do read in Luke, is that there was an argument at another end of the table. And the table situation is not like Leonardo da Vinci's straight table. This is a three-sided table. Jesus is on one leg. It's like a big horseshoe. Jesus is on one leg. Peter and some of the other disciples are on the other leg. John is sitting next to him. Judas is on the other side of him. Matthew's on the other side of Judas. Peter's probably on the other side. James is probably over here with Philip and Bartholomew and those folks. But you know what they're arguing about? They're still talking about who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. And it's because of that argument that Jesus gets up and puts a towel around and starts washing the guy's feet to show them who's the greatest in God's kingdom. You need to be a servant of all. That's the first few verses of John chapter 13. He tells this story that none of the other writers tell about. They need to understand what was taking place. But then look at verse 21. Confusion starts entering in 21. They're having this great meal, and all of a sudden Jesus throws this hand grenade Maybe that's the wrong term to use. He throws this egg in there. I don't know what it is. Well, I don't know what the other term would be. But he throws something in that all of a sudden upsets the apple cart. So they're having this sweet time. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. They're back eating again. They're back talking again. Probably the argument has stopped. And then in 21, he says, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And then he testifies and he says, I tell you the truth, one of you, is going to betray me. And they all heard that. The other gospel accounts said that every single one, all 12 of his disciples looked at each other, were startled and aghast, and they said, who in the world could this be? And then they began to say, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Because as they looked across the group, no one could imagine that anyone, even Judas, would ever betray Jesus. They had been together for three and a half years. How is it that anyone could betray them? And every single one was asking, who is it? Even Peter kind of motions to John, who's across the way, to find out who it is. And they can't hear because of the size of the tables, but in, as you read through here, Judas gets up and he leaves. And people aren't putting the pieces together yet. They're not recognizing why he's out there. He's thinking he's going out for more milk or something. They, they really don't know. But th- their mind is now filled with this thought that this evening's not going to end like we thought it's going to end. Something bad is coming down. Now look at verse 33. He throws another one out. And he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews so I can tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. 
All of a sudden now they're hearing Jesus. Okay, someone's going to betray him. And in just a little while, he's going to go to a place where no one else can go. And they're not going to be able to find him. All of a sudden now, around this table, their mind is thinking, oh my goodness, what is about to happen here? Now you and I know, as we would look back in the scriptures, we would say, come on guys, Jesus said what was going to happen back before you got to Jericho. He said on at least three or four other occasions on the way to Jerusalem, guys, this is not going to turn out like you think it is. But they're not getting it. In fact, uh, if time would allow, there's some really funny things that take place. After Jesus says, hey guys, when we go to Jerusalem, they're going to they're going to grab me, they're going to spit upon me, they're going to mock me, they're going to beat me, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And then James and John says, hey, uh, yeah, okay, that's great, Jake, but, but can I sit on your right? Can I sit on your left? And Jesus must say, guys, are you not listening? And that's what's happening here. So Jesus goes into this great passage in verse 34 about how we're to love one another, but they're not hearing it. Because look what happens in verse 36. After he makes this great statement about how we should love one another, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, what? <laughs> Peter, didn't you hear me? I want you to love one another. And you're still back on verse 31 or 33. And now he has this discussion where Peter says, Lord, you're not going to leave my sight. I'm not going to betray you. I'm not going to depart from you. And you have this encounter where he says, oh, Peter, you really are. In fact, you're all going to scatter. You're going to go to each other's homes. You're going to deny me three times. And now he goes in this great section in verse four, chapter 14. We're getting closer to where we're going to read here. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Great passages of scripture. But they're clueless. They're confused. They're clueless. They're not understanding what's going on. And Thomas says, look where, he's, look where Thomas is still at. He's still back up in verse 33. He says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how in the world can we know your way? Now, I find it interesting that John writes this, that he's helping us to see that at this stage, nobody was getting it. Everyone, including John, was confused. Everyone was clueless. Just look over to chapter 16. This is interesting. Look at chapter 16. So there's a lot that transpires that we're not gonna be able to get to. This is in the weeks to come. Jesus says some tremendous things. He's going to talk about the vine, abiding in the vine, and bearing the fruit, and all these good things. And, but look at 16, verse 17. Some of the disciples said to one another, what in the world is he talking about? What does he mean by saying, in a little while, you'll see me no more? They're still back up in 1333. And he says, in a little while, you'll see me no longer. Then after a while, well, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what in the world are you talking about? What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he was saying. So I'm sharing this with you because as we go through this, folks, we're going to talk about Philip here in just a little bit. They're not getting it. Jesus is speaking some great things, but they're not hearing it. None of this made any sense. In fact, if we could keep going through here, it wasn't until the resurrection. It wasn't until they saw Jesus. It wasn't until they touched him. And, and John later says in 1 John chapter 1, says, we're witness to these things. Our hands touched him. Our ears heard him. We hung out with him and we saw him ascend and he's coming back again. Until that happened, their lives were a mess. And they thought of Jesus, and we'll see this here in just a little bit, they, they didn't recognize who Jesus was. In spite of spending three and a half years and seeing some incredible things, they were missing it. And they missed it until after the resurrection. 
So when we look at chapter 13, coming into this special room, Jesus wasn't confused, and he wasn't clueless. He knew exactly what was about to happen. Two things that stand out. When you look at John chapter 13, actually there's a few other things, but these two key things is one, in John chapter 13, is that he knew that his time had come. He knew that this was it. He knew that this was the Last Supper. This was not a surprise to him. As he was all along the 13 and a half, or three and a half years of ministry, as he was walking with them, he knew that this day was coming. He was looking forward to this evening. He knew what was going to happen after the evening. He knew what was going to happen in the garden. He wasn't a, a fooled by any of this. He knew that his time had come. He knew that his ministry was coming to an end. It was now his time to go to the Father, go back to the Father, and release the disciples to share the gospel message which you and I have benefited from. He knew that his time had come. He also knew that all things were under his power. He knew that he was in control. Now, it may not seem like it when we get to the garden, and it may not seem like it when we see the crucifixion, but Jesus assures him, and he even tells the Jews, folks, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me, and I will pick it back up again. He will even tell his disciples in the garden, hey, guys, listen, if I want out of this thing, all I have to do is ask my father, and he's gonna send 12 legions of angels which there's 6,000 in a legion. We got 72,000 angels showing up. All he needed was one. But he could, have, he, could have, he could have pulled the plug in the thing at any time. And he tells his disciples this. And he even tells Pilate. And he's, Pilate's wondering why in the world Jesus isn't talking and defending himself. And he looks at Pilate and says, Pilate, you have no power over me. <laughs> you have no power over me unless it's given to you. And Pilate is just scared to death that as he faces the king of kings, the Lord. That's why he writes it. This is the king of the Jews, and he's not dissuaded to ever change that. So he knew his time had come. And that takes us now to verse uh, 7. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to follow with me. I want to give you this background so it kind of makes sense. I'm actually going to pick it up at verse 5, and on the screen we'll start at verse 7 here in a little bit. But Philip is going to look here in just a little bit. He's going to say, Lord, show us the Father. So let's see how we get there. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered and said, I'm the way. In fact, the way it's phrased, it says, I am the only way, and I am the only truth, and I am the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's where we get close to Philip. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip is still stuck. And he says, Lord, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Show us the father, Lord. I mean, you know, if, you're, if you're gonna go and we can't follow you and we won't be able to find you, well, if you can kind of give us a big burning bush thing, we'll remember that and we'll hang on to that. <laughs> If you can maybe whisper in the wind like Elijah experienced, we'll hang on to that. If you can kind of show us your glory, maybe the kind of glory like the big clouds thing, we'll remember that. We'll hang on to that. If you could just show us something more, Lord, then we'll be able to hang on to that. And look at Jesus, and there's sadness in Jesus' voice. And Jesus answered him, Philip, Philip, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, well, Philip, why are you asking that question? Anyone who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. So how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, Philip, they're not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Philip, believe me 
when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence and the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I do whatever you ask, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And it's just a shame that we have all these verses and these breaks because this story just continues to flow, but we're gonna stop right here at verse 14. Let me pray for us, and we'll move into the outline. Father, thank you for the preciousness of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your work. And Lord, let this word come alive to us. Let it speak to us, because Lord, there's gold here. There's treasure here that you want us to know about yourself. So help us as we go through it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in your outline, just follow along and encourage you to look up the verses when you go home and study it as you go home. But Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. He was looking for a visible manifestation of the Father. So look, let's, let's, let's look at the obstacle that was in Philip's life. I'm gonna point out four things. Look at verse nine. Peter, Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even if I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip was blind. Because even though he had been with Jesus for three and a half years, he couldn't see Jesus as he really was. I think if we were to talk to Philip at this point in time before the resurrection, if we were to talk to any of them, including John, they thought they were hanging out with a guy who was gonna bring deliverance from Rome. They were looking for a savior, they really were. What they were looking for was a political savior. They were looking for a new president that was gonna make everything right and better. That finally would give Israel finally the glory that they had talked about in the Old Testament. That is what they're looking for. And if you talk to any Orthodox Jews today, that is still what they're looking for. They're looking for a political savior. They did not they don't understand Isaiah 53, that there was gonna be a suffering savior that was gonna come first. In their mind, they were okay eternally because they were born a Jew. And, that, and that's, a, that's a ticket to heaven from their perspective. And if that wasn't sufficient, they've been pretty good, pretty good guys. Those two things, their ethnic background and their good works was enough for God to accept them into heaven. That's what they thought. So they were not looking for uh, a savior to save them from their sins. They already had that done. They were circumcised on the eighth day. They got all these good works here. And Nicodemus in chapter three was just shocked when Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he said, ah, how can that even happen? I said, unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, something has to happen in here. It's not what you are on the outside. It's not all this stuff on the outside. It's what happens in here. And that's true today. But Philip couldn't see Jesus as he really was. He thought he was another Moses, thought he was another Abraham. He knew that he was going to die eventually, but he was going to establish a kingdom back here on earth. They weren't getting it. He was blind. And folks, you and I are blind too. We have a, many of us have been to Sunday school. We've had a, maybe a strong church background. Maybe some of you are new in the Lord. Maybe you don't have some of that baggage behind us. I was in chapel this last week for the Big Valley Christian School. I was looking at all these youth. I had junior high and high school, just like here. And I, and I know, I'll say, kids, you know, they're singing these songs. Do you really know what you're singing about? And for many of us, we have this view of Jesus as a, you know, he's a, this, funny looking guy with flowing brown hair and blue eyes in the picture, holding up a sign, hands like this or whatever. Uh, we see him on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. See him with children on his lap. We have the Sunday school Jesus in our mind. But he's not the treasure in the field. He's not the gemstone that's worth selling everything for to have. 
He's maybe one more thing we can add to our list of stuff to do, but he's not that treasure. And Jesus describes himself likened to a treasure that's found in the field, and when it's discovered, a man sells everything he has so he can get that field, so he can get the treasure. It's likened to the man that goes into a jewelry store and he sees this beautiful, beautiful gemstone. And he says, I've got to have it. i got to have it. And he sells everything he has to get it. And that's who he is. He's precious. He loves us. Just as we are. He's preparing a place in heaven for us. We're his bride. He can't wait to be married to us. And the bride is described in all of her beauty. And for many of us, our hair's messed up. We got stuff on our face. And yet he loves us. He's preparing a place just for us where we can be with him and he can be with us. And we'll never be separated ever again. You ever been around somebody who just exudes the love of Christ? I had a privilege this last week. and Man, I want to be around people like that. But Philip couldn't see it. He was blind. And folks, so we are too. Philip was struggling with his unbelief. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? Look at verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am the Father and the Father is in me. Philip had a hard time believing that. Couldn't see that. He just saw Jesus as a special guy, a good teacher, one who could do great miracles. Philip couldn't hear. Look at, verse, look at the second part of verse 10. He couldn't hear. He says, the words that I say to you are not just my own. Philip thought they were. Rather, it's the Father that's living in me who's doing his work. Jesus said over and over again, guys, I don't do this on my own. In fact, I meet with the Lord every day and he kind of shows me where, where he's working. That's where I go. And when you think about that, it comes pretty special. He, the father was working in the heart of the woman in Samaria. And the father told the son, I want you to be in Samaria by noon. And you're gonna have to walk a different way than most guys walk. But if you go there, sit by the well, I got an appointment for you. Isn't that cool? The father was working this woman's life. He was working in the man's life who was who was there at the pool of Bethsaida and Jesus walks all over other people and he goes to this man because the father's already been working in him and he says, I want you to go bless that man. My hand's been upon him and ask him, would you like to get healed today? Stand up and walk. You go through every single miracle of Jesus. The father was working every one of those instances and the, Jesus joins the father wherever he is working. But Philip couldn't hear it. Couldn't hear, recognize that the words and the things that we have here are coming from the Father through Jesus. And Philip was just like everyone else. And we looked at verses six, chapter 16, 17, and 18, where everyone was saying, what in the world is he talking about? Philip was just like that. And maybe even here, you today, as you've gone through the word, you're wondering, Lord, what are you saying? I don't get it. And that's where we come and we pray, Lord, would you open my eyes that I can see, open my heart that I might receive your word. Lord, would you help me to grab these truths that you would have for me? So here's the truth about Jesus. And this is, folks, this, this is huge. Because it really makes a difference who you see Jesus as being. And as a part of my studies, I, 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 I was looking at the New World Translation, which is the the translation that Jehovah Witnesses use, and it breaks my heart as I look at some of these things and what they see Jesus as being. Because in their teachings, as well as in some of the other 
um, derivatives of Christianity, uh, they have a different view of Jesus. And Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus is an angel that got promoted. The angel that God made first, and he made everything else through this angel. And so when you read John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a little g God, a little tiny God. That's not who he is, folks. That is not who he is. It's not the brother of Jesus. <laughs> he is the eternal one. Colossians says he is the image, the icon of the invisible God. He is not a distorted image. He is the exact reflection of the almighty Father who is a spirit who no one has seen. And he comes from the Father. He is begotten of the Father. He's the only one of his kind, never having any beginning, never having any end, has always been, and he is God. He's the image of the invisible God. And I think about the, when you go to these carnivals, you see all these different mirrors and how some mirrors make you look skinny, some of them make you look fat. He's the perfect image, not the distorted image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He reflects perfectly the majesty of God. He also is the exact representation of God the Father in his character. That means that when we see Jesus with a leper, we see the love and compassion of God. When we see him with the adulterous woman, we see his mercy and his grace. And Jesus came to show off the Father. He's also, is God manifesting himself in human flesh. And so he comes down and he puts on our flesh and he's perfectly God and he's perfectly man. And he walked among us, he dwelt among us. And John says, and we didn't recognize him when he first came. And later in 1 John, he says, we beheld him in all of his glory. We touched him, we talked with him, we ate with him. And we are eyewitnesses to him. He is God showing up in the flesh. And here's the key. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. This is huge to understand. They are one in purpose. They are one in power. They are one in essence, but they are distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is begotten from the Father, having no beginning and no end, and he is the beginning of all things, and all things are revealed by him and for him and through him. But don't have this image that the Father is, is the all that exists. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All are God. All are one. All are in essence the same. All are together in purpose, but all are distinct. They're not three individual little tiny gods. They are one God, one power, one in purpose, but distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And this is what Jesus was trying to show these men that they did not understand until after the resurrection. And Jesus is trying to say again, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. It's interesting, just this word, Father, when you look at the book of John, there's some words that just show up again, again, and again, and again, and again. One of them is the word believe. It shows up 93 times. The word father in John shows up 140 times in the book of John. You know how many times the father shows up in Mark? Five. <laughs> in Luke, it's about 40. <laughs> in Matthew, it's about 40. But what is it about this word that caught John's imagination? 
Folks, this is huge. This is huge. Because prior to Jesus coming, the Father was unreachable. He was untouchable. There was a huge curtain that separated man from the presence of God. And only one man, once a year, could go into that holy of holies and come near to the presence of God. And if he wasn't right, he was struck dead. I don't know how they got him out. Some said they had a rope and they pulled him out. But he, the Holy Father was untouchable. And now Jesus shows up. And here's what John catches. <laughs> when you pray, you can pray, Daddy, Father in heaven. The veil has been torn. We can walk right into the presence and rather than walk in with fear and trepidation, we can walk into the arms of a loving Father who says, I have been waiting for you. I have been waiting for you. You see this in Luke chapter 16 when the son who spent all of his father's wealth comes back in tattered rags, probably the same clothes that he left that were once beautiful and costly and pricey. They come back tattered and ripped up today. That would be popular. But back then, that showed that he had been a failure in his life. And the father embraces him. Doesn't even talk about how he spoiled his clothes. Doesn't talk about how he stank. Doesn't talk about where he had been, he said, I'm so glad because you were once in my mind dead and now you're alive. That's the father. And that word caught John's imagination and he uses it in nearly every chapter. In fact, every seven words, it's what it equals to. It is used so, it's, it's the number one theme in the book of John is father, daddy, father. And he says not only, in fact, as you look at the words, He'll say the Father, but he'll say my Father, your Father, our Father. He wants us to know that the Father in heaven is our Father. So we get to verse 18. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, what about us? He wants us to know, and we'll get more into this next week, but he wants us to know we're not abandoned because he's, he's, Jesus is leaving. The men are afraid. And he says, I want you to know that when I go, I'm going to send a comforter to you. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And that is a wonderful promise that the Lord has given to every one of us. He will not leave us. He will not abandon us. He gives us his Holy Spirit when we welcome him into our life. But here's a promise. If we abide in him, look at verse 12. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do whatever I have been doing. He will do even greater works than these. So if you and I, if we abide in Christ, you and I, we're gonna bear fruit just like Jesus did. And the works that we will do, he says, will be greater. Not greater in power, but greater in effect. Here's an interesting story in Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out 72 people to heal the sick, to um, um, preach the gospel, and to be a blessing and encouragement to others. And they come back in Luke chapter 10, all excited. Says, so you wouldn't believe what happened. Man, people got healed. All, we got, uh, demons were, were cast out, all sorts of things. And Jesus says, yeah, I know, that's great. That's exciting news. But you know what really is the best news? Is that your names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. The greatest miracle is not getting a back straight, being healed of cancer. The greatest miracle is the work of God on a man's heart. The change that he brings, the freedom that he brings, the joy that he brings, the purpose that he brings, that is the greatest miracle. And Jesus said, whatever I did, you're gonna do a whole bunch of times greater than I. And just a few chapters later, a few weeks later, 
Peter preaches a message never preached ever before, and 3,000 people give their life to Christ. Just like that. Isn't that amazing? And from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28, thousands and thousands of people come to Christ. And folks, we're the product of that. The greater work is the privilege that God has given to us to be a part of someone else's story in coming to Christ. Folks, our potential is greater. The potential that God has to take our stories and to transform it and to breathe life into others' lives, our potential is huge. It is unlimited. Who knows what God might do with our story? You might be, you might be a Sunday school teacher who goes to a young man who's selling shoes that changes a young man's life when he comes to Jesus, like D.L. Moody, and millions of people give their life to Christ. You might be the rodeo cowboy who shares his testimony, and a young man in the audience at 19 gives his life to Christ and becomes the next pillar grant. We have no clue what God can do with our lives. When it's in his hands, no, mind has, no eye has seen, no mind has heard what God might have in store for each one of us who love him. Isn't that cool? And so it's never about us. It never is about us. It's about Christ's living, working in and through us. It's always about him. Our story is his story. I don't glory in my story. I glory in what Christ has done in my life. I give him all the praise, the honor, and the glory. So now he says, in conclusion, how ought we to pray? Look down at the bottom. In verse 13, he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Look at verse 14. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So what do we have here? A new Santa Claus? What is he talking about? One thing you'll notice here when you look at verse 13 and 14 here, Jesus is eager to work through us. He's eager to do the Father's work through us. He's eagerly waiting for us to ask that he might complete his work through us. He's eager to do things greater than we might ever imagine. All we need to do is ask. And the phrase in Jesus' name is not a tag-on that gets you a Mercedes. <laughs> it's not a tag-on that gets you a new job or whatever else you might want. It's asking in his name as Jesus would ask. It's praying for those things that correspond to the nature and will of Jesus, to act in his behalf, to accomplish the work of the Father. Folks, this is huge. You have cancer. What is God's will for you? It might be to carry that cancer. And he'll show a story and reveal a story that's greater than you can ever imagine. That might be his will for you. And so now as I pray, I, I, yeah, it'd be great to be healed. But you know what would even be greater is that you would take this cancer and Lord, you'd do something great with it. You do something great with it and touch my kids' lives. You do something great with it and touch my doctor's lives. You do something great with it and you'd introduce me to somebody who has no hope that they might find you. The difficulty that you're having with your family. What is God's will for this difficulty and this challenge you're facing? Maybe it's a separation. Lord, would you reign in this moment in me? In this job that you have given to me, would you reign in this moment with me? Not my will, but your will be done in my life. And Jesus is ready to answer that prayer. And folks, when you look at verses 13 here, look at verse 13, the last part of it. So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. It's always about the glory of the Father. The word glory means to honor and magnify and give praise to the Father. It's that you and I would be a wonderful fragrance of Christ. And that when people see us, when people touch us, when people are around us, that they would see Jesus and they would praise the Father 
for what he has done in our lives. There was a man named Henry Varley who met D.L. Moody, and he says, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man, and I'm gonna suggest the world has yet to see what God can do with a church that's fully consecrated to him. When he shared that with D.L. Moody, Moody says, I wanna be that man. But folks, just imagine (laughs) if we were to be that church. Imagine if there would be a church that would be fully consecrated to Christ. Imagine, and the church isn't the leadership here. It is us. We are the church. Every one of us make up the body of Christ here. Imagine if we were individuals as a body of Christ fully committed to the Lord, what he might do in and through us. The world has yet to see a church that's fully committed and devoted to him. Folks, let's be that church. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you've showed up. Thank you for delivering us from our fears. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness and the freedom we have in being washed clean from sin. Thank you, Lord, for the new work you're doing in each of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that in your hands, the potential is greater than we might ever imagine, not for our glory, but for you. And Lord, we look forward to the day, should it even be today, to see you face to face and to hear you say, welcome home. Lord, would you put into our hearts this deep passion and desire to hear you say, well done. Let me show you what I have prepared for you. We look forward to the day. Until then, Lord, may we be like Paul who says, for me to live is Christ. It's all about Jesus. Would you help us to be a people that would live today and in our workplace and our homes to be all about you, giving you the praise, honor, and glory in whatever we do. For your name's sake and for your joy, we give you praise. Amen.